Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Hey everyone, I'm Beth Baker and welcome back to Season 3 of Coffee and Conservation. In this next episode, you'll catch a conversation between myself as well as Matthew Harrison, who's co-piloting with me today, and we're joined by Dr. Sean Tanger, who's an Extension Professor with MSU Extension down at our Coastal Research and Extension Center. So you got it. These next three episodes are all about carbon markets, and in this first episode, we're going to be talking about the history of forest carbon market opportunities in the Mid-South. So we're going to focus on forest carbon markets um, kind of initially to give context to the history and current market um, opportunities. And through what we know about those carbon markets, we should be able to draw some connections to soil carbon markets and also where uncertainties lie. So one of the, just so we're all on the same page about what we mean when we're talking about carbon, and a carbon market, one of the primary drivers of, of climate change that's been, been identified is increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and one of the primary ones being carbon dioxide. And this is important to understand as we, as we enter into this discussion, um, because carbon markets represent strategies to capture carbon from the atmosphere and move it into a different form. This is typically plant material, or what's often referred to as biomass above ground, like trees, shrubs, grasses, and other plants, or in plant biomass below ground, like their root structures, that would decompose into smaller bits of organic material. When we say organic material, we mean something that would, would be living dead or really dead and might actually be incorporated into the soil. And then when we take that carbon and discuss it in terms of a carbon market, we're really referring to this economic framework that supports the buying and selling of that environmental commodity um, to kind of signify a greenhouse gas emission reduction or sequestration. So that's where we move into evaluation there. Um, and we're gonna dig way deep into that, but I think we're gonna jump right into this discussion. And where we want to start is with the history of forest carbon markets. I mentioned we'll start there as our first learning objective, kind of move into current carbon markets and opportunities. I'm going to kick this first question to Dr. Tanger. Um, can you start and just give us an overview of, of what these forest carbon markets are um, and, and then why there is, is the need? And I know I gave a little intro, but I know you'll, you'll give more detail on this. Yeah, thanks, Beth. Uh, appreciate you, you having me. Uh, thanks to you and Matthew. And uh, uh, good to see everyone. I am, at, just to clarify, I'm 100% extension uh, appointment. I work down in uh, Biloxi at the Coastal Research and Extension Center. <clears throat> and the reason I've, you know, kind of gotten into this uh, forest carbon uh, market uh, uh, issue area is probably around two years ago. I started to get a couple of questions from landowners, but actually uh, the uh, founder for NCX, which was formerly Sylvia Terra, reached out to me to try to help them build a, a fact sheet for landowners to use in order to, to determine, okay, if I want to, I'm going to postpone my timber harvest for a single year, uh, you know, what, what sort of opportunity cost am I going to have? What, what would my price point need to be? Uh, again, without do, using a lot of math, that's hard to do, but that document is out there. If anybody's interested in it, you can just email me 
Um, I'll put my email in the chat before we're done. If you, if you want to copy it's it's three, three, four pages. So it's not a, a lot to digest, but there is a little bit of math along with it. Um, but to answer your question, Beth, uh, you know, a forced carbon market, it, it, you first have to kind of start out with, well, it's like any other market, right? You need buyers and sellers to agree on an exchanged good or service. Um, in this case, what we're exchanging are carbon credits, but what those carbon credits represent are, uh, you know, deferred carbon emissions. Um, so we'll, we've got to do a little bit of nomenclature definitionally kind of as we go into this. So there's really on the demand side, there's kind of two, two, two uh, demanders. Uh, one is going to be out of a cap and trade necessity. So cap and trade, if for those that aren't familiar, and again, I'm, I'm not the world's expert on this. This is kind of my, uh, kind of my, uh, my, what I call my, my redneck definition for it. But for uh, cap and trade uh, necessity, typically some sort of governing body will pass regulations, you know, stating that a particular industry or industries have a certain set of uh, a level of emissions that each producer within that industry or that, that area can produce. And so they'll be issued uh, credits to that end. And those credits represent those emissions that they're allowed to emit. Now, uh, in any particular year or whatever, uh, whatever uh, system they're using, if they're using quarterly or yearly, uh, if those producers go under their emissions targets, then they can take those credits that they've been issued by that regulatory body and they can trade those with other uh, producers that are in that cap and trade program. So that's that's credits in and of itself. You don't have to have anybody outside of those industries or that regulatory agency in order for credits to exist, at least in a cap and trade setup, because those credits are, are issued by the regulatory body. Now, a lot, most of the time what we, what we have happen is those emitters go over their targets in those cap and trade systems. And in those cases, uh, at least for now, those, those entities, those producers are allowed to go outside of that cap and trade system to find what we call uh, carbon offsets or offset projects. And those offset projects will then uh, sequester and store carbon that that company will then purchase from those, you know, those, those offsetting groups, produce those suppliers as it were for carbon offsets. And therefore they'll be able to, even though they're over their emission targets, they're essentially buying uh, the right to emit more uh, by having an offset project elsewhere that's sequestering that carbon that they're emitting okay, over and above their target. Um, also for demanders or consumers, there may not be a, a cap and trade or, or a, a regulatory requirement. Uh, they may seek offset projects to lower their emissions footprints that they're tracking uh, individually or you know, as part of a a cooperative of some kind uh, in order to target environmental, social, and, and governance criteria. That's a, a, a corporate ease term, ESG. Um, and a lot of times that'll be more for either they're, they're expecting regulatory behavior in the future, so they're going ahead and getting their, their business used to it, or they're uh, signaling to shareholders, hey, we're environmentally responsible, and we, you know, here's how many offsets that we've acquired over you know, the last year or five years or 10 years, and that's reduced our carbon footprint by X. So those offset projects, the suppliers, 
uh, in this case, uh, typically come in, in four major categories. You can have efficiency and fuel switching. Uh, you could have waste energy. Uh, there could be renewable energy, but the ones that we're most interested in are forestry and conservation. And that would include, uh, a, so ag would be sprinkled into a lot of those other ones I mentioned, but it could also be, be uh, factored into the forestry and conservation section, which, we're, which I'm most familiar with. Um, and so essentially what will happen is a landowner or a company or whoever is a land, uh, a forest landowner will engage in certain practices that will create uh, additional carbon sequestration and storage on that forest. And they can then sell that excess in, in an, uh, as an offset in, in either uh, a regulated system like the California cap and trade system or in a, uh, a voluntary system. Uh, kind of like what we've seen pr uh, proliferate here recently. As for uh, as for the why uh, there would be a need for such markets, it's kind of like what you mentioned earlier, kind of in that same vein. You know, these are emissions targets and, and reductions that have kind of been agreed upon uh, through international treaties through the UN. Uh, they cover the gamut of greenhouse gases. I think there's typically about six that they're really concerned with. The reason CO2 is kind of the most focused on is it's the largest, right? It's the one we emit the most of. It's not the most dangerous in terms of on a per unit basis, but there's just so much of it that they've, they've targeted, uh, targeted that one. A lot of the other uh, gases and, and, and even uh, the framework that this, these, these emissions reductions kind of uh, fall within, right? Clean, clean air, clean water, clean, you know, cleaner environment. Um, you know, emissions reductions will just kind of be a subcategory within that larger framework. So even the Clean Water Act or uh, fuel efficiency standards that we have, you know, a lot of those things can will all feed into carbon reduction uh, activities. Um, and this is kind of just a, a subgroup of that larger uh, that larger uh, effort strategy to uh, to reduce emissions of, of one kind or another. Yeah, and you know, so you mentioned the different frameworks for, for buyers, and in that um, that cap and trade is one, but that voluntary um, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions is another. And I think that's really interesting since we've seen so many companies publicly announce, you know, emissions targets on a voluntary basis. And so when you think about like the history of the carbon markets, which I'm going to ask you to to describe a little bit in a minute, and why we're seeing such an explosion now, a lot of that voluntary. Um, you know, emissions targets would be driving some of that demand right now. Is that, would that be, Sean, like a correct assessment of why we're seeing so much more interest in carbon markets right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of those things, a combination of, of those larger uh, kind of international, uh, you know, cross, uh, you know, cross country uh, treaties and things like that. But also, kind of at the crossroads, or, or kind of the crossing of that, with uh, the corporate interest in it, right? A lot of those corporate interests are driving uh, that conversation that these countries are having at, at the international scale. Uh, you know, the need or the demand that they think their consumers have for those things, or their desire as a company for a myriad of reasons. Um, you know, has kind of has kind of apexed right along with the technology that's just really started to mature enough uh, for 
good for us to be able to kind of somewhat track uh, a, a particular offset project that, okay, this this 500 acres of forest is actually sequestering and storing, you know, X, X units of, of carbon dioxide, and therefore we can issue credits uh, based on that project. Um, but the, you know, kind of the bigger picture, if we go back a little bit, I mean, I'll, I'll be quick with this, right? You have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. And that kind of starts the, starts the discussion. There had been a lot of kind of under, under the ground uh, or kind of under the surface, I should say, discussion, uh, you know, going back as far as the late 70s with all of the environmental, you know, catastrophes and things with the, you know, lakes catching on fire and things like that. And so that kind of kind of stirred a, a conversation on the environment and climate generally. And you really see it kind of kind of hit a crescendo in, in 1992. And then, of course, with the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which actually starts to map out what those uh, emissions protocols could look like, what what offset programs could be. It's not super detailed. It kind of gives a real broad, big picture. And some of the, those details and those renewed commitments have uh, uh, taken place with the, the uh, Paris Climate Accords. But you have to keep in mind the Kyoto Protocol wasn't fully ratified until 2005. And so we're only talking about, you know, what, 17 years now where these state parties uh, have have really committed and those commitments are not binding. Right. You don't you don't go to international court if you don't live up to your, you know, as a country, what you said you would try to reduce your emissions by. Uh, but a lot of the states are engaged in, in those programs. European Union has an emissions trading system as of 2005. It's probably been the most successful as far as scale quantity. Uh, we have the Western Climate Initiative here that started in 2007, and that includes California. Uh, there's a few other Western states that are interested. They haven't officially signed in and started reducing emissions yet. Uh, that also includes Quebec, actually. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how that relationship got formed with California and Quebec. Uh, Alberta has a program that started in, I believe, or, or somewhere around the same time, maybe maybe a couple of years later, 2007, maybe. Um, but they were really uh, policies designed to, you know, uh, issue credits uh, for industries like the energy sector to limit the, the amount of emissions that they can produce by allocating a limited number of permits or, or credits uh, that correspond to a, a certain amount of emission. And that could be carbon, it could be methane, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and so forth. So. Um, a lot of it kind of initially got started through the regulatory process, even if it wasn't enforceable with these, you know, UN kind of, kind of, uh, kind of pushes, but the corporate entities have, have really adopted that as of, as of late and have really started driving that where, whereas you've had a couple of voluntary systems in the past, like Chicago climate exchange, which ultimately went uh, defunct, I believe in 2009 and started in 2003 which is a little bit sooner than some of these other ones. But um, there's there's been a, a renewed push. And yeah, a lot of the, if you look at a lot of the private um, uh, companies now, like NCX or Forest Carbon Works or Green Trees, which are the three we have in Mississippi that I'm aware of, uh, those all have a lot of corporate uh, uh, money backing them in terms of, you know, uh, uh, getting the fixed costs squared away, getting the programs up and running. So yeah, I, I'd say that's dead on target that most of the new behavior 
you know, the, the uh, flurry of activity that we've seen, it's almost entirely uh, private as of, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, thank you for that. I know the folks listening probably think that maybe that's more of a background than they needed on carbon markets, but I also think that it really helps to set the this this kind of scale of demand from a from a both a global perspective and then a regional perspective because if if you know, we are going to assist landowners as conservation professionals or landowners listening are going to invest time in producing this product. They want to know that there's a sustainable demand associated with it. And so I think that background really sets the stage that the demand does exist and it's probably going to, going to continue to exist, if not increase, for at least the foreseeable future as we continue to experience so many different climactic events that, that produce risk and uh, an economic impact, which is what you know, we're, we're trying to mitigate. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.